Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. Coming up on this week's episode... I can sum it up in one word, really, which is big. It would have looked very, very big. We speak to Matt Simmons about Hadrian's Wall and its long history of creating division. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by The Past, a brand new website that brings together the most exciting stories and the very best writing from the realms of archaeology, history, heritage, and the ancient world. You can subscribe to The Past today for just $7.99 a month by visiting our website at the-past.com forward slash subscribe. Now, Hadrian's Wall is one of Britain's most famous archaeological monuments. Stretching 73 miles from coast to coast in the north of England, its construction began in AD 122 to establish a northern frontier of the Roman Empire on what was previously open land. In an era when walls and borders, both hard and soft, remain very much in the news, it's fascinating to look back on this ancient example of a frontier and re-familiarise ourselves with its history. To discuss the wall in more detail, Carly Hiltz and I spoke to Matt Simmons, editor of Current World Archaeology magazine who has just written a fascinating new book on this landmark and its long and often surprising history. Hello, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Are you well? I am well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. No, it's, it's our pleasure. It really is. Um, well, I wanted to ask you straight away um, a very simple question, which is that, you know, we may know uh, who Hadrian's Wall is named after, but I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about why it was built and the history behind it. <laughs> it does seem like a very simple question, doesn't it? And mm. On one level, I can give a simple answer, which is there is a fantastic ancient document known as the Historia Augusta, which gives us our only ancient reference to what it was that Hadrian's Wall was doing. And it tells us very succinctly, Hadrian was the first to build a wall 80 miles in length to separate the Romans from the barbarians. So on one level, there is the answer. Hadrian's Wall was designed to separate the Romans from the barbarians. But... As we are, I think, increasingly aware in the modern world, there are many, many different ways of creating separation. And debate about Hadrian's Wall has really broken down into two different general scholarly camps. And their positions can be crudely characterised as Hadrian's Wall either acting as a way to peacefully regulate the movement of people. So by that model, people could more or less move across the wall at will. They would be checked. Customs duties would doubtless be extracted, but it was essentially a way to regulate the movement of people. And there's another school of thought which seems Hadrian's Wall is very much more of a military barrier. And according to that model, it was capable of repulsing a full-scale barbarian army, and it was much more of a closed frontier. People probably could only pass at two or maybe three points along the line of Hadrian's Wall. So we have these two very, very different views about what it is that Hadrian's Wall was intended to be doing. Which, of course, raises the question of, well, what can we say about it at all? And I think there are perhaps two observations which are worth making. It looks very, very likely that Hadrian's Wall was built after some kind of outbreak of violence. So in that regard, it was surely designed in some way to create stability and security. And the way that Hadrian's Wall cuts through the landscape the scale of the monument suggests very strongly that there was a really keen interest in being in a position to regulate movement, to be able to control it to whatever degree they wanted to. It's 
perhaps something we lose sight of too easily these days. But when Hadrian's Wall was built, it was a surveillance system on a scale utterly unprecedented in Britain. Nothing like it had been seen before. Uh, you talked about the scale of this monument. Could you give us an idea of what the wall would have looked like to a contemporary observer? Yes, I, I think I can sum it up in one word, really, which is big. It would have looked very, very big. And perhaps one of the best ways to get a sense of what I mean by this is to skip just for a moment to Germany, because Hadrian's Wall is very often compared to a Roman frontier system in Germany, which was another artificial barrier. So there was a barrier there as well. And if we compare the linear barriers in Germany in the Hadrianic period with the linear barriers in Britain, you get a sense of just how big Hadrian's Wall really was. So at this time in Germany, in Upper Germany at least, the linear barrier seems to have consisted of a palisade fence. So, I mean, it's still a substantial obstacle. You're looking at giant timbers, probably about three metres tall, something like that. But it is not really on the same scale as Hadrian's Wall. When you look at the linear barriers at the end of Hadrian's reign, you would be looking at an outer ditch to the north, often about eight metres wide, three metres deep, between the ditch and Hadrian's Wall itself. There was a berm, and at least in places, this was covered with what's often referred to as Roman barbed wire, which seems to have been ranks of really nasty, spiky branches positioned in such a way so as to be able to tear at trespassers. Beyond that, you have Hadrian's Wall, the curtain wall, where it was built of stone on its biggest and most impressive scale you're looking at something three meters wide and probably about 4.3 meters to walk height and then beyond that to the south so this is supposedly within what you might think of as friendly territory a truly extraordinary and enigmatic earthwork known as the vallum which is 36 meters wide generally speaking and again a huge ditch in the middle of that about six meters wide and three meters deep so if you compare that to what they had in germany you are looking at a truly extraordinary obstacle. Now, on the one hand, it, I think it'd be reasonable to say that if you were to the north of this, it probably wasn't the most inviting thing to be looking at. But it would be fair to say at this point that there were also installations along the line of Hadrian's Wall. Again, at the end of Hadrian's reign, you have a series of turrets, you have small military enclosures known as mile castles and much larger military bases known as forts. And the mile castles and the forts would have had large double gateways, um, which would lead north through Hadrian's Wall. So there were ways to pass through Hadrian's Wall, but still an extraordinarily large obstacle. Yeah, um, I'm very interested in these, uh, the mile castles and the forts. So they, I mean, what the difference in size? Is that the only difference between them? And um, the mile castles, did they act as, as checkpoints or were they more open gateways or stuff like that? Well, these are, again, excellent questions. And to try and understand Hadrian's Wall, I mean, I should probably say here that I'm biased because I'm something of a milecastle specialist. But <laughs> I, I think it really comes down to understanding the milecastles. And as you say, that's exactly because they hold these gateways through Hadrian's Wall. So if Hadrian's Wall functioned as a system whereby you're regulating people, you're taxing people, then these would be the places where people would be moving through the frontier, where these checks would be taking place. Equally, if Hadrian's Wall was largely a closed frontier, then these would probably be gateways designed for military use to, prevent, to allow patrolling north of the wall and to make sure that Hadrian's Wall was not an unduly massive obstacle to the Roman forces 
as they were operating in the area as well. Now, to me, I think one of the most fascinating thing about milecastles is literally right up there in the name. As people have known for a long time, they are positioned at extraordinarily regular intervals, which is generally speaking, but rarely exactly, one Roman mile or 1,479 metres along the curtain. This is a very odd thing to do. In the past, the Roman army had previously decided that the most sensible way to use its military installations was to site them sensibly within the landscape so that they could derive maximum advantage from their surroundings. Whereas on Hadrian's Wall, by positioning the mile castles at regular intervals, you're in a position where you take an orderly spacing system and impose it on irregular terrain and you therefore get installations, even with the limited flexibility allowed, turning up in quite, quite bizarre places. So as we've talked about, they have these gateways which you could pass through to um, move north of Hadrian's Wall. In one occasion, the, um, the north part of the Mile Castle faces a 30 metre vertical drop. So anyone trying to pass through Hadrian's Wall there would be faced with a very nasty surprise indeed. <laughs> now, on that occasion, they didn't build a gateway, but you get a number of mile castles in positions which are very poorly suited for north-south movement across the line of the wall. And this regularity doesn't just extend to the mile castles. Between each pair of mile castles, you generally speaking have two turrets. I mean, these are essentially towers. And these, again, are positioned at intervals of about one third of a Roman mile, so 495 metres. You see this extraordinarily regular spacing system imposed on the landscape. Now, for a long time, it's been assumed perfectly reasonably that if you can, you can position your installations according to a preconceived spacing system, the nuances of the terrain are probably not that important to what you're trying to do. But the great thing about Hadrian's Wall is because its design is so predictable, because we can see where these posts are meant to be, we can see where the Romans, for want of a better phrase, decided to break their own rules and do something a little bit different. And when you take these different irregularities, these different places where things are slightly different, and you superimpose them on a map, you start to see that a very, very interesting pattern emerges which is that significant places in the landscape, sometimes natural places, sometimes artificial places, which are likely to have aided the movement of people through the landscape, receive special attention from the Roman military when they're building Hadrian's Wall. And that turns Hadrian's Wall around really, because then you go from seeing it as a regular spacing system that takes no attention to the landscape to one where the landscape is at the heart of what they're trying to do. And the way that people are moving through it is very, very relevant to what Hadrian's Wall is trying to do. And that's one reason why the forts are also interesting to uh, get back to your original question. <laughs> These hold much larger numbers of soldiers in a mile castle, maybe 32 men, approximately something like that. In the forts, you're looking at forces of just under 500 men to over a thousand men in different places. So significant, significant forces. And these were built according to a less regular spacing system. They come slightly later in Hadrian's reign. It's at a point when the design of Hadrian's wall has changed slightly. And there again, if you look at oddities in fort spacing, you tend to see that strange things are happening at crucial key points in the landscape. So again, suggesting that there's a very real interest in the way that people are moving through it. Um, speaking of people, 
in your book, Hadrian's Wall, Creating Division, uh, you make the point that the wall was built on, on what was open land. So that makes me wonder, uh, what would its construction have meant for the local communities living in that area? Change, I think, is probably the short answer. And I think it's probably fair to guess that this would be unilateral change as well, that this is likely to be something that was imposed by the Roman military. There can be a danger when we look at archaeological sites to assume that if you find where the sites are, that's also where the people are. But again, if we look at the more recent past, where we have perhaps been confined to our sites, our houses, more than is usual, we get a sense of how unnatural that is. Now, one of the very interesting things about Hadrian's Wall is that in the last two decades or so, there's been a significant amount of archaeological work undertaken on local settlements. These are settlements that people were living in before the Roman army turned up, so far as we can tell. And what this is showing ever more clearly is that the area that Hadrian's Wall cut through was home to settled and sophisticated farming communities that were centuries in the making. And these are groups, at the absolute least, you'd be looking at the fates of thousands of people depending on what it was precisely that Hadrian's Wall was intended to do. And these were people who would have been moving through the landscape. So you'd have farmers moving for markets, you'd have drovers almost certainly with their livestock, you'd have pilgrims, envoys, almost certainly the druids that we like to talk about, people moving for marriage and things like that, seasonal labour, almost certainly um, there would be seasonal gatherings as well. And of course, for ritual reasons. So we have to imagine this huge web of movement that existed in the wider region. And Hadrian's Wall would have cut right across that. So it certainly seems that there was significant scope for inconvenience to local interests. And if Hadrian's Wall was largely a closed barrier, if it was primarily intended for military movement, rather than for local movement, then that would have made major changes to the lives of the people living in the region. And the probability that it did have some kind of impact is suggested by recent work on the Northumbrian coastal plains, the north of Hadrian's Wall. And there we see these local farmsteads, which developed, as I say, over hundreds of years. Radiocarbon dates suggest that these seem to be starting to go out of use at about the time that Hadrian's Wall became operational. So it seems reasonable to link these two events. Now, of course, archeology span being archeology, span there's always a chance that this picture will change and that future evidence will make us see things in a different way. But we have every reason to believe that it would have made a significant difference to the way that people lived and moved through the landscape and that it had real implications for the people who had been living and working in this area. Yeah, I mean, you've you sort of already answered my next question, which was um, that uh, the wall, there is evidence that the wall actually severed this community and it had the effect that it was intended to do. It did provide a barrier between the North and the South. Is that correct? Yes, I think, I mean, yes, with um, with certain caveats as always. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there are, there are two major Roman highways that cross the line of the wall, and it seems likely that some kind of passage was still permitted there, for example. And we also know from many, many ancient sources that at least some Roman soldiers were rather susceptible to bribery. So we can pretty much guarantee that there would have been some unofficial passage as well. 
But one of the things that's interesting is the way that Hadrian's Wall develops during the construction program. So I've always I've already mentioned that these forts were added to the plan and the Vallum, this huge, strange earthwork to the south, was also a bit of an afterthought. So what you could take from that is they start building Hadrian's Wall as a comparatively lightly manned you know, a very massive obstacle, but comparatively lightly manned. And then at some point in the construction phase, they suddenly feel the need to start adding forts with thousands of extra soldiers in. And they also build a gigantic earthwork to the south in this supposedly friendly territory, which has no real parallel that we know of on any other Roman frontier. And of course, would have been spectacularly inconvenient for anyone on Hadrian's Wall who wanted to head south. So it seems reasonable to, to link these changes to some kind of change in local circumstances because of the construction. And by that reading, we could, we could concoct a scenario whereby they start building Hadrian's Wall. And that in turn creates a spike in resistance because local groups, not unreasonably, see what is going to happen as a consequence of it. And as a result of that, more forces are needed on the line of the wall to create that stability and an obstacle is needed to the south of the wall, again, presumably to keep the wall secure from that area. So that would suggest that you're getting problems both from the north and the south, mm. I would think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, looking at the later use of the wall, um, how effective was it over this longer period? Is there a specific moment in history, like when the Berlin Wall came down, that we can say, ah, it's no longer being used? Or is it more of a gradual fade out, would you say? Another brilliant question. And I guess by now it's becoming increasingly clear that brilliant question is my sort of archaeological code for no one really knows the answer. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess logically there probably must have been a moment when Hadrian's Wall ceased to be as significant a barrier. Exactly when that moment is, is much harder to pin down. I mean, as I've said, some people argue that from the very beginning, it was more of a way of regulating rather than blocking movement. So by that model, you would, um, you would never have seen a, a Berlin Wall style situation because it would be a case of controlled movement. So you have a level of control, but not the sort of blocking that you see in the Berlin Wall. I think it's fair to say that incre an increasing number of scholars do see the wall as block as primarily a military convenience in terms of allowing north-south movement. So that has to imply a significant degree of, of inconvenience for the local population. And over time, you see Hadrian's Wall changing. This is one of, the, one of the things that I find really fascinating about it. There seems to be this continual dialogue whereby they start building it. It, in turn, changes the circumstances around it, as you would imagine. And then Hadrian's Wall itself then has to be tweaked and adopted, adapted to meet these changed circumstances. And you see other examples of this, I think, later on in the Roman period as well. So it looks as though it is continually in a dialogue with its own surroundings. And it is changing the landscape around it. And in turn, that is resulting in Hadrian's Wall also needing to be changed. To get to the point, I suppose, um, if we assume that there was indeed limited passage across it in the Hadria Hadrianic period and Hadrian's Wall remained a potent barrier right the way through the Roman period, and it has to be an assumption, we cannot prove it, but it probably is a reasonable assumption, then, at some point, then Roman control will have ended, probably 
It ended you know, around 409 when Roman control of Britain ends. And there's good evidence from the forts that they remain occupied beyond the end of Roman control. Um, possibly no one had officially informed them that they were on their own now. Mm-hmm. And this wouldn't be that surprising because Rome had lost direct control of Britain a number of times in the past, and it had always reasserted its authority sooner or later. So it's only us looking back from the present, and we can say, well, 409 was the end. They didn't come back. If you were on the wall in 409, you would probably have thought that precedent would suggest sooner or later the empire would turn up. And so you'd probably be wise to keep your forts manned. There are two accounts, by one by Gildas, one by Bede, after the Roman period, and they talk about communities continuing to live in the forts. They think of them as towns after the end of Roman control. And there is fighting, but generally speaking, it's seen as the forts, the towns are eventually abandoned by choice, and then terrible things happen to the people who were in them. So at that point, you could say, well, that's the Berlin Wall moment. That's when it ceases to be manned. It ceases to affect the Libya barrier. And there's a, a Scottish writer known as John of Fordun, who talks about the slicing of the wall in much more detail and should probably be stressed that fable is probably the correct way to describe um, this particular history. But um, he does talk about how the wall is slighted, about how peasants got um, their tools and tore holes in the wall to break through it so that there would be broad gaps that people could pass through easily. So if there was a Berlin Wall moment, that's the closest we have in the ancient Mm. histories. But in many ways, what's more interesting about Hadrian's Wall is the way that it's always been there ever since. It's not as though it, you press a button and it ends at the end of the Roman period. It's continued to be significant and important. It could be referred to as a famous wall just a couple of centuries after the Romans have left. And time after time after time, you see the people living in the area using Hadrian's Wall as a way to state that they are the heirs of Rome and that as a consequence, they can enjoy the power and legitimacy that comes from that. And then you come right down to today where you have Hadrian's Wall functioning as a tourist attraction, Mm. where it draws in many, many people in any normal year, and so creates a massive cash injection for the area. And that, I would say, is just simply the latest example of present generations or current generations finding new ways to use Hadrian's Wall to further their interests. Yeah, that, that's very interesting in itself. Um, I think uh, we need to leave it there in terms of Hadrian's Wall, but obviously you're the editor of uh, Current World Archaeology as well in your spare time, maybe, from writing the book. Um, I, was wondering, <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us um, the, I think the latest issue is coming out next week or the following week. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what's in that and what we can look forward to. Well, uh, you'll be amazed to learn that as editor, I can say very firmly, there is a huge <laughs> amount to look forward to in the next issue of Current World Archaeology magazine. As you know, it is perfect for your international archaeological needs. And in the next issue, we'll be I'd say jetting, of course, unfortunately, it is figuratively jetting around the world rather than literally jetting Mm. around the world and taking in all sorts of sites from uh, latest discoveries and news pieces through to our features, which take a detailed look at some recent work at the city of Jurash in Jordan. Really very, very interesting. There's been excavations there that have looked at a number of things, including the interiors of two houses that were demolished during a devastating earthquake. 
and their contents were then left as they were. So they had been undisturbed until the archaeological teams turned up in 2014, I think, and started looking at what was there. So you get a really powerful glimpse of what life was like inside these two houses just before this devastating earthquake struck. We also have a look at some enigmatic temples on the Hawaiian island of Maui. And these, again, are absolutely fascinating things. In the past, these temples, the the level of difference between them has often been stressed and the idea that it's very, very difficult to find patterns, particularly in their orientation. But new work has shown that there are patterns there and that we can see a whole range potentially of new things going on in these temples, the way that they had a vital role in acting as a way to keep track of the seasons, crucial in this marginal terrain where these particular temples lay, and also had a craft role that really essential tools would be manufactured in what would, we would see as a ritual environment. So lots to look at there, really very, very interesting new work. Roman Geneva, we take a look at some of the lives of Roman women that existed in the town. I think it's a vicus, technically speaking, but there's a whole series of inscriptions from this vicus, which gives a real insight into lives ranging from those of slaves all the way up to a senatorial lady. And it is, it is extraordinary sometimes how you can see things like family pride echoing through the centuries in terms of someone's joy that their daughter has become an imperial priestess. And on other occasions, you get a chance to try and pick apart some quite tangled family relationships. Um, we also go to Oracolo Bay on Papua New Guinea. Um, where we take a look at how locals use traces of the past in terms of pottery and also stratigraphy to illustrate their own histories, which is really very, very interesting. And Richard Hodges gives us an update on some excavations which have been taking place in Tuscany, where he's been looking inside Queen Adelaide's castle. So a whole wealth of uh, different topics to enjoy, hopefully. Yeah, sounds, sounds like a great mix. I look forward to seeing it. Yes, thank you, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks again, Matt. And I can confirm, because I've actually checked this time, that the latest issue of Current World Archaeology will be out in the UK on the 20th of May, and in the rest of the world later the following month. You can also read it online at the PAST website, where you'll find plenty of fascinating extra content on Hadrian's Wall from our own archives. And of course, I should mention Matt's book, Hadrian's Wall Creating Division, is published by Bloomsbury Academic. Make sure you get a copy. You can head to Bloomsbury's website for more information. That's all for this week. Carly and I would like to thank our guest, Matt Simmons, for joining us, and to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to us and sharing it around. The Pastcast is available every Wednesday morning on Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, and from wherever else that you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again soon.